Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Welcome to Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson. And me, Danny Howard. We're two best friends entering the world of true crime. I'll be sharing the stories of some of the worst and most horrific murder cases in history with the help of professional criminologists. And we're taking you along for the ride. In this episode, we're looking at the sweet old lady who ran a cute collection of rooms for people in need. Danny, how have you been? Um, I'm good, thank you. I have have a bone to pick with you. With me? (laughs) With you. What have I done? Um, well... So for people at home who are listening, Helen's a creep and um, <laughs> and keeps trying to get me to listen to ASMR. Yeah. And it's disgusting. Why, it's, why it's, have you brought that up? Why have you why outing me now? I'm outing you now. I've saved it for the podcast. Okay. <laughs> what well, have you been This is the appropriate This is place weeks to ago I told it. you to look at ASMR. Why I know, now? Because it keeps affecting me. It's it's still affecting me now. And so the whole, I know I don't even know what the point of ASMR is. It's supposed to be relaxing. Right. Mm. But tell me, what is relaxing? And I don't know if any, but we're in a different space today mm. and our mics are slightly different. And I can really notice the difference in mouth noises, which is basically a, uh, stop it, which is basically <laughs> ASMR. I don't know what it stands for. Do you know what it stands for? I don't know. Audio. Amazing sensory marvellous revelation so as an example of the thing that helen sent me it's someone talking to you like this oh god yeah do it more (laughs) and you can hear them and they always need to have a drink because you can hear all their lips sticking to their teeth and it is fucking disgusting yeah and this this, horrific i have never Wanted to vomit my mouth so violently as to when I could just hear people whispering in my ears. Disgusting. I don't see what is relaxing about well, it. Well, let me tell you. It's okay. wrong. I can't. I, you've tried. No. I refuse to be converted at this point. Okay. So for me, I'm quite a sensitive person. So sensitive to touch. When people like whisper in my ear, I go Ooh, like that. And I think for people that are sensitive to certain sensory things sounds and stuff it triggers they call them tingles Ugh. and Ugh. it's just tingly in your brain sometimes in my vagina but like <laughs> it depends what the asmr is you know anyway so, why bring this up why bring with me we'll just start the podcast i'll see how you are and they have a go at me i'll go well, on. I, it's all this sounds there's a you know this mics. is this is a sensory experience isn't it people yeah. at home are listening to us i am constantly ever since day one when we recorded it and we we're nervous on that day that was the first time i've ever done it getting a bit more experience now and i am still so paranoid about how loud am I breathing? What if my lips are sticking to my teeth? What if producer Alex hears me do a little burp? (laughs) (laughs) Right? And I spend the entire time, none of this is relaxing because I'm spending the entire time very focused on my mouth. And so to be focused on someone else's mouth, um, 
you know, okay, well, I've made it sound dirty now, and I, but um, yeah, and as soon as, and I'm a sensory person, like I really like listening to thunderstorms on Spotify or other audio platforms to help me fall asleep, right? And they have to be at a certain volume, but as soon as the tingles you talk about, as soon as I hear the, like it just it tingles my gag reflex. We're all different. We are all different. We're all cut from different cloths. It's not right. That's your opinion. It is. And I stand by it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Danny, first of all, how how do you feel about the elderly? Because I have strong opinions on the elderly. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll just go first. What go are your first. strong opinions? How do I you have a strong opinion on the elderly? I just can't deal with them. They are so cute. I have cried in my car at how cute old people have been before like I went to Morrison's once and the man that served me at the till was so adorable I got back in my car and shed a tear I'll tell you what the other one is as well is um when you see an old man on his own buying flowers oh my god don't or like I always bump into people in my local park um like a little old lady walking a little old sausage dog and we have a nutter I just can't deal and I walk away clutching my chest (gasps) I can't do I can't deal with it they're just so just just love old people. But I'm not very experienced with old people because my grandparents live abroad. Mm-hmm. So I don't see them very often. No. And um, I mean, well, my great granny has just always been the oldest woman alive or mm-hmm. was the oldest woman alive mm-hmm. while she was alive. Really? But it never really felt like being around an old person because she would tell you you were fat, <laughs> tell you needed to wash your hair and then proceed to feed you intensely for the next hour. <laughs> If you tried to stop eating, it would be an issue. So <laughs> great, loved her. She was brilliant. I miss her every day. Yeah, I feel like other people's old people are nicer. That well, not nicer, but like my old people and my grandparents who are now in heaven. They were, they weren't sweet and cute, but but like other people's old people, lovely. I, the only reason why I ask is because would you ever believe that a, an adorable old woman would also be a serial killer? I want to believe that, yeah. Okay. Well, you're about to. Great. Let's I'm excited. S- let's set the scene now. On a quaint street in Sacramento, California, America. I've always liked that name of a town. Sacramento. Sacramento. Stands a cream-coloured Victorian-style house. You know, like the idyllic ones with the kind of porches. I've always wanted to live in one of them as well in America. They're just beautiful. The cosy two-storey home on F Street is a boarding house for low-income tenants or people generally in need. And the landlady is a very sweet old lady who takes people in who have nowhere else to go. Just like, come in, I'll look after you. Like, you can just picture it. A good Samaritan. Lovely. Lovely. Get you on in. Get Come on, come in. Come in here. Right, you sit down. I'll make a cup of tea. I feel like every old person in my head has a very strong Norfolk accent. <laughs> Doesn't matter whether they're American, Polish, whatever. Like they're always going to be. Hi, you right, my woman? Come in, <laughs> sit you down, but I'll get you a cup of tea. Uh, everything will be right. My my nanny was really Norfolk, 
but she wasn't cute. Gross fact about my nanny is my granddad didn't like her smoking. So she would see him, she'd smoke at the gate, waiting for him to come home from work. Because my granddad retired when he was like 80 because he was a welder and he loved it. He was in the newspaper and everything, right? She said they were smoking, waiting for him to come down the hill. Then she'd just hide a fag. But when I, I moved into their house when they were when they passed just mm. for a little bit, I found so many cigarette butts hidden in places where she just hidden her fag ends because she didn't want him to find out. Fucking legend. I was like, nanny, that is disgusting. That's great. But yeah, my, my nanny wasn't particularly idyllic, but she was hilarious. Better fag butts than bodies. In it. <laughs> In it. <laughs> it's February 1988 and 51-year-old Alavro, otherwise known or fondly known as Bert Montoya, has spent his life drifting from homeless shelters and then living on the street. Poor Bert. He suffers from mental illness and often wanders about with nowhere to go in particular. One day, he finds himself on the doorstep of the boardhouse on Earth Street needing shelter and the landlady opens her doors and says, would you like to come in? <laughs> in that classic Sacramento accent. <laughs> yep. Fast forward to November. So that was the February turned up on her doorstep. This is now November. He has been reported missing by a social worker. He hadn't been to see a social worker for three months, so she's a bit worried. So the police decide to pay a visit to his last known address, which is 1426 F Street. Homicide detectives John Cabrera and Terry Brown, along with federal probation agent Jim Wilson, arrive at the boarding house late in the morning. There's been rumours of suspicious activity, so it led them to inspect the garden. So she's watching them from the balcony with her cup of tea. Oh, having a look around my garden. <laughs> and they start to dig up the lawn. Oh my God. At the first dig, Nothing seems to be going on. But while digging a second hole, Agent Wilson's shovel strikes something hard and at first he thinks it's a tree root. But with a bit of a tug, he finally yanks out a human femur bone. Oh, my God! Yes! <laughs> Just as we kept digging, we kept finding bodies and more bodies. And it just seemed endless. Whatever we took down, whatever we moved, wherever we were digging, we'd find a body. It was just unbelievable. She put seven people in this small yard and there wasn't even a witness to any of these burials. Not one. So over the next three days, seven bodies were discovered. My goodness. I like... I don't know, I shouldn't, I'm slightly impressed. Because how's she done that? How old is she? 59. Oh, she's not that old. All right, I'm less impressed. But she looked... I mean, obviously I'm not impressed. She's a murderer. I'll just caveat that. But, you know, physically, as a feat to hide seven bodies is a pretty big deal for a, a, a regular person of of not elderly. Yeah. 59 isn't that old in these yeah, days, though, is it? Yeah, you a picture of her. She looked well old. I'll show you a picture. You saying she, that don't sound old, but you should look at a picture of her. Oh, she looks like she's about 80. That's what she doesn't look 59. What has she been through? Well, you better Are we going to find out? You are going to find out. Oh, okay, good. You are going to find out. The landlady, a number one suspect, is sweet-looking, 59-year-old Dorothea Puente. 
When you look at this person, you don't automatically assume or even think that this is a serial killer. She looks like everybody's grandma. So let's go back to the start, shall we? Yeah. So Dorothea was born Dorothea Gray. That was her maiden name. In January 1929 in San Bernardino County in California. California is massive. So she was the sixth of seven children and she was raised in a pretty poor and stable environment. So her parents, they weren't particularly loving. They deprived her and her siblings of like basics. She often had to scavenge for food. Both of Dorothea's parents were alcoholics. Her dad would threaten to commit suicide in front of his children and her mum was a sex worker and abusive and she wasn't around much. But both of her parents died around the same sort of time, um, which meant that Dorothea was passed around, first of all, passed around relatives and then she ended up in an orphanage. Criminologist Dr Elizabeth Yardley, our mate Liz. Liz! She believes her dysfunctional upbringing set her up for a difficult future. She was kind of passed from pillar to post quite a lot. So she didn't form those stable, secure attachments with her caregivers that many of us do. And I think that went on to shape the person that she became. In 1945, at just 16, Dorothea married her first husband. How did you get married at 16? Was that quite normal back then? It was. It was when it, getting married young was the thing. It's a bit young though, isn't it? Yeah. Even then. What was I doing at 16? <sighs> Fucking... Lambrini, a pack of ten Marbleites. Sterling oh. Menthol if they were no Menthol Super Kings, pack mm-hmm. of ten Menthol Super Kings, a Lambrini or a Smirnoff Ice if I was feeling plush. Mm-hmm. Um I think I hadn't quite got on Frosty Jacks yet. And we go down the wreck because there was a skate park there. Mm-hmm. And we used to watch the boys do BMX and be like, Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So they had two daughters, but they gave both of them up. One to relatives, one for adoption, which is pretty sad, isn't it? You'd hopefully put them together, but they then split three years later. In the same year, Dorothea was convicted of fraud for trying to cash in a cheque under a false name. Now, this is this becomes like mm. a thing of hers. She loves doing this. She served four months in prison, and then by f- 1952, she was married again to her second husband, um, and they moved to Sacramento. They were married for a decade, but it wasn't exactly a happy marriage because she loved a bit of drinking, a bit of gambling and other men. So as you can imagine, that didn't really last very long. They broke up. So two years later, she was then 39. So 39-year-old Dorothea met her third husband, who was 16 years younger than her. So I think that makes him like 23. Mm, Quick maths. Yeah. But they separated a year later. He probably realised, hang on, I'm fate. I'm 23. Oh, I did. Um, so, but she did keep his name, Puente, which I would... Great name. Isn't it? Mm. So she had already served time in prison for forging checks, but now she had found a new way to earn money. She starts to, to get involved in sex work, selling her body um, to, to basically put clothes on her back and feed herself. Now, here's an individual for whom violence and abuse was just normal for her. If we look back at her childhood experiences, they're certainly not normal and warm and and loving. They are quite brutal and quite cold. So this is the only thing that that she knows. It's, It's those basic emotions and those basic instincts. So Dorothea eventually moved from sex work 
and decided to pursue a different career in care work because you don't actually need many qualifications to do care work. All of a sudden, a whole new world had been opened to her. So she started renting a flat at 1426 F Street in downtown Sacramento. And so she took on the role of a caretaker for the other tenants in the Victorian-like home before turning it into an unlicensed boarding house. So she basically made this home her own care home kind of thing. You know, people come. They get cared for. They get cared for. Get murdered. (laughs) (laughs) And then they never leave. And they never leave. In 1977, a local Spanish language newspaper even featured the story of Dorothea and referred to her as La Doctora. So she was pretty well known in the area for being some sort of saint, you know. Her little illegal enterprises started being very successful. So, you know, she became actually quite a credible caretaker. She was quite a smart woman. She knew how to work the system. In 1982, Dorothea met 61-year-old Ruth Monroe. Ruth's son, Bill Clausen, remembers when he and his mum first met Dorothea. We met Dorothea through a gentleman that my mom met while she was working. And he kept asking her out and she finally went out with him. And then they started seeing each other and he introduced her to Dorothea. During their friendship, Dorothea decided she wanted to open a restaurant. And my mom wasn't working anymore, and um, my mom had a little bit of money. So she ended up opening the little cafe at the Round Corner Bar. So Ruth ended up marrying Harold, who had introduced her to Dorothea. But soon he was diagnosed with cancer and he had to go live full-time in hospital. So Ruth didn't want to live on her own. So Dorothea had an idea. Ruth could live with her at the boarding house. We moved her in there on Easter Sunday, 1982. And she died April April 26th, two weeks later. Um, I saw my mom every day from the time I moved her in there. I stopped by there on my way home from work. And the last three days of her life, um, she seemed like she was getting sick. And when I went there, I'd noticed that she had a drink in her hand and my mom didn't drink. So I asked her, I said, what's that? And she said, it was a drink that Dorothea fixed to, to calm her nerves. I said, fine, and I didn't think anything of it because I knew they were friends, and okay, fine. Ruth's health deteriorated so quickly over a few days that the next time Bill went to go see her, she was almost catatonic. Mom was laying there. I sat next to her and touched her and told her, I said, Dorothea's taking care of you, you'll be fine. And uh, she had a tear coming out of her eye, and that was it. She didn't say anything. She just laid there the next morning I got a call from my brother telling me that mom was mom was dead went over there she had already been taken away by the coroner's wagon and Dorothea had said that she committed suicide it must be quite like 
tricky because or it was it's a very good cover up in a way because Dorothea is a renowned caretaker and so they're obviously going to think that his mum's in safe hands and so everything that's going on with his mum he's going to think is solely his mum's responsibility or her own doing because obviously if you're trusting Dorothea is you know because she's a that's her job she's she looks after people you, you would never suspect her to be doing anything dodgy yeah but then also did Ruth have any inclination did she know that something wasn't right did, is that why she was upset like I'm in this position and being well yeah it's interesting isn't it because also like if you were sort of worried about that she was still obviously she still obviously had that trust if she had the drink in her hand yeah. she's waiting she's probably and, thinking know. that Dorothy is best has got my best interests at heart so why would she be actively trying to harm me Absolutely. So Dorothy has got the best sort of disguise, as it were, or cover up for what she's been up to. As you can imagine, Ruth's sudden death stunned Bill. Totally out of character. She had she had everything to live for. She had grandchildren. She was happy. What's not easy? Not easy. You still have the pain in your heart. By August the same year, Dorothea was back in trouble with the authorities. She had been abusing her position as caretaker for her fellow tenants by again forging signatures on social security checks so she done she was got time for forgery before now she was taking advantage of these people so she went to prison again despite just going to prison and being on parole she then still continued to do that like take people's social security checks and keeping most of the money for herself so they had no idea, no idea, even though she'd just been to prison for it. Well, you'd think also maybe they might keep an eye on it. Yeah, yeah. I know. That's what I mean. That's what I, that's what I think. Like, why is no one checking up on their behaviour? We should probably yeah. just make sure that Dorothy is not forging checks again. <laughs> She's like, I'm out. Let's do it again. <laughs> do, 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 do. Uh, off to buy, straight out of prison, straight to the stationery shop to buy some new pens. <laughs> my forging <laughs> pens. My forging These pens. are my forging pens. Got a great rollerball on the end. Fucking lovely. Let's go. I think it's because she managed she managed to build a really good reputation though within with the local social workers for being a good caretaker. So I think they just thought, Oh, Dorothea, she's good at a job. She couldn't do anything wrong. She means well. Yeah. Well she used to open her home for recovering alcoholics and drug addicts. And- yeah, and then take their money. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Somebody somewhere must have been like, I actually don't think she's a good person, guys. <laughs> After the second time, like, she went to prison. Oh, maybe she'll... No, she just came out. I've seen her. Like, straight down straight down the post office to cash them checks. <laughs> like, oh, she's somebody somewhere. She's. I think maybe Dorothy is not great. Mm. Maybe she's got like really big blue glassy eyes that when you look into, you're just immediately like, oh, she's a good soul. And it's because she looks like she's going to be on the Golden Girls. She, her activities were undetected for three years and tenants at the Sacramento boarding house came and went. They came, she took their money, they went. They were none the wiser because they were all vulnerable people. And she knew that. November 1988 when a local social worker, Judy Moise, filed a missing persons report. She had lost touch of her client 
a 51-year-old called Bert Montoya. I got a copy of the report. And um, what I started doing then was running a background check on the missing person who was Bert Montoya and trying to get a little bit of background on him and also running a check on the caretaker who was in charge of this particular individual. And Bert was a disabled adult. And uh, the caretaker, Dorothea Puente, was apparently in charge of him living here. On November 11th, 1988, Jean Cabarera, his partner Terry Brown, and Dorothea's parole officer, Jim Wilson, decided to pay a visit to the boarding house. Prior to leaving, on that day, uh, we were starting to leave, and Judy Moise um, turned to me and said, you guys better take some shovels. And I went, well, what for? And she said, because I've driven by in the past and I've seen mounds of dirt out there. And uh, it kind of looked like a burial ground. So taking Judy's advice, they decided to take a few shovels with them on their visit. Well, we come to the front door, knock on the door, the three of us, and uh, she answered. And she's dressed very nicely. She looked at me and said, I was expecting you guys. You know, it kind of caught me off guard. And I said, okay, well, I said, you know why we're here? We're here to see, you know, uh, about Bert, what happened to him. And she said, yeah, and uh, I asked if we could come in. Their first task was to find a little bit more about the mysterious house. What is this place, 1426 F Street? What is it here that you're running? What is this place? What are you doing here? And at that time, she looked at me, she looked at her parole officer, and she just said, you know, um, Jim, uh, I'm in violation of my parole. So she's clearly trying to, like, you know, uh, move them on to something else because she was told that she wasn't supposed to continue running a boarding house, but she did so anyway. She does what she wants, Dorothy. The so switcheroo. Yeah. So she's trying to put them in a direction that's to do with her parole. But really, she's like, oh, crap, they've got shovels. <laughs> but she'd been running this for three years undetected. She's got away with it. So all of her suspicious activity, she's been getting away with. Which, again, parole officer's not particularly good at his job because she... <laughs> well, this is just it, though, because she's, she's an unlikely villain. Isn't it? I reckon there's a few unlikely villains out there. I've got a theory, mm-hmm. right? Um, Lin-Manuel Miranda, <laughs> right, mm-hmm. could actually be a supervillain. Who is that person? He's the guy who What's wrote that? Hamilton and <laughs> In the Heights. And uh, he wrote the soundtrack for Encanto. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. well good. Exactly. Because every single thing that he's oh. done is mega. Yeah. All his songs, like the whole of Hamilton, anybody who's watched Hamilton or listened to Hamilton is singing it for the next seven years, right? I mean, I'm not being funny. Encanto came out ages ago now. Everybody's still talking about Bruno. Yeah. Everybody is still talking about Bruno. Yeah. So my thing is, slowly but surely, he's infecting the world with his wonderful songs. Right, and then eventually he's just gonna like snap his fingers oh, yeah. or whatever, and like the Pied Piper are all just gonna like pour into the streets or do whatever he wants, and he could just he rules the world. He's unlikely villain, though. and no one, none of us would have seen it coming except for me. 
No. Unlikely villain. Same as Dorothea. Yeah, okay. He is fit though. Yeah, I would. While Jim and Terry chatted with Dorothea in the kitchen, John began his search, hoping to find clues to Bert's disappearance. After I completely looked through the rooms, didn't find anything, I came back. And bearing in mind what Judy had talked about as far as the mounds of dirt, I asked Dorothea, I said, look, um, I'm going to be able to tell the social worker that we looked and we didn't find anything. And she was somewhat agreeable with that. Okay, you know, that's good. And um, then I said, I have one more question for you. Can I dig in your yard? And she says, why don't we do this? You guys go back to the office. I know you have a lot better work to do than to be over here. And then I'll make a phone call. I'll call some people. They'll come over here and they'll do the digging for you. And then you can come back. I thanked her. And uh, I said, you know, we're here, we have the shovels. We'll just go ahead and dig around. If there's anything we put out of place, we'll do our best to get it back, you know, to the way it was. And so she says, okay. And that's when we went outside to dig around. So we had three shovels, three of us were digging. And then one of the holes is what we started finding, something similar to cloth. And it just seemed out of place in the ground. And then, I dig a little bit further, and I was down to about three feet. And that's when I thought I struck a tree root. So I took the shovel, and I started banging on it, and I started trying to dislodge this root or sever it so I could continue to dig down. And I couldn't do it. It just wouldn't break. So I got down in the hole, and with both of my hands and bracing my feet, I just kept pulling on this, what I thought to be a root. And I pulled on it and pulled on it, and finally it dislodged itself. And I'm sitting in this hole, and I'm hanging on to what looks like a human femur bone. And at that time, get out of the hole, and I realize something's up. We've just come across human remains. Of course she's going to tell them to go home. You go home. I'll get someone to sort it out. <laughs> whilst I also get rid of all these bodies that I've buried. <laughs> and come back. And you can have a look again. It's a great tactic, isn't it? Don't you worry, boys. I tell you, don't you worry, my men. I, I'll do that for you. You you go on, you go on, and I'll get you a ring, right? When it's all done, and you just come and have a look. That's all right, and I'll be I'll be fine. Oh, there's nothing here to see. Maybe my hydrangeas might have caused a little bit of issue with the roots and the and the path outside, but that's about it. Oh, you look tired. You look tired. I'll get <laughs> someone else to do it for oh, you. Don't, you, don't don't, you worry. Don't you worry. So they were all, the three men, were completely shocked, as was Dorothea. She was pretty shocked as well. Well, yeah, she was only expecting him to dig a little hole. She looked down into the hole and she could see the bone and she grabs her mouth, and she's, oh, is that what I think it is? And Yeah. What can you tell me about this? She says, I don't know, but there's been other people that's been living here. I was in prison, and there was a lot more people living here before her. She's got a point. Like, she could have totally got away with saying that. I didn't even see that coming. I, but, yeah, like smart. I don't know what that's... That's that's the first thing you're going to say, isn't it? I don't know what that's doing there. Who put that there? (laughs) John stopped that dig. He stopped digging his hole. And 
a full forensic search of the garden would have to begin the next day. At that time, I decided I was going to take Dorothea back down to the Hall of Justice, and I was going to now question her in full. I questioned her about what I found. I questioned her about where Bert was. I'd even told her as part of my technique in my interview, I said, I bet if I dig any more, I'm going to find more bodies. And she just looked right at me and said, well, if you do, I didn't put them there. Despite having a body unearthed in her yard, 59-year-old Dorothea had not been charged with anything. As of yet, there wasn't any reason to suspect she was involved. But as John Cabrera continued digging, Dorothea called him into the house. And she says, am I under arrest? And I just thought, how odd. What, what was it that gave her the impression that she was under arrest? Immediately, I said, no. And I said, why do you ask? And she said, well, all of this is making me nervous. And she goes, I would like to get a cup of coffee. And I'd like to go over to where my nephew is, around the corner at the hotel. And I said, okay, get what you need, and then I'll walk you over there. She comes walking out, has a little red coat, has her purse, walk down the stairs, walk out. But what I had told her was that I would escort her because there were a lot of people starting to gather. And I thought, I don't want anyone walking up to her or bothering her. So I used that ruse to uh, walk her down to the corner. Firstly, if someone had come to your house and started digging up bodies, I think I would also ask if I was under arrest. Because if a policeman looks at me, I think, I'm in trouble! You know? Oh, yeah. like, don't act suspicious. Don't act suspicious. Have I done something wrong? Have I done something bad in the last 24 hours? Uh, and then you just, you know, think about all these things that you could possibly be arrested for, which is most of the time nothing. Equally, I'm just going to get a cup of coffee. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Around the corner. I'm just leaving. <laughs> I just have to go. <laughs> just, for a, just for a minute. I'll be right back. I promise. I'll be right back. And yeah, I can picture it like... Tasmania devil cartoon where she goes and then like a load of smoke dust dirt just erupts from the ground old lady hole (laughs) a bunch of smoke (laughs) (laughs) she gone she gone I watched her go all the way down and then go up into the hotel and that was the last I saw of her at that time so I run back and I continue digging again short time later I hit something and I'm fiddling around with my shovel. I'm trying to get it up, figuring what's down here. And I keep trying to bring it up and bring it up. And I do. And in my shovel is a human leg. So immediately I stop, I yell to my commander, we have another one. And he runs over and the first thing he asks is, where's Dorothea? A second body has been found. And at this point, she was nowhere to be seen. She'd done a runner. So she'd gone to the hotel, grabbed the phone, called a cab, and she'd gone to LA. (laughs) (laughs) She actually... Yeah. I mean, I would have done the same, to be honest. Don't be suspicious. Don't Don't be suspicious. (laughs) Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. (laughs) Just got to go. (laughs) And so at that time, we called in the FBI and, um, you know, enlisted the help of other... Uh, resources and outside agencies and trying to locate her because that is what was key right now is to try 
to find her as fast as we could. Back at her house, one of the many people who had gathered to watch the excavation shared some very important information with Deputy Coroner Laura Santos. He told the story that um, he had dug holes in this yard for Dorothy and she paid him cash. She just told him she was burying trash. So he came in and pointed out where he had dug holes. So that's how she did it. Oh. So she got a poor guy in to dig holes, which he thought was just for trash, but he didn't realise that he was actually digging graves for people. Who buries their own trash? I did think this. I was like, that's really bad for the environment. Is that not weird? Did that, is that not something you'd be like, oh, odd? Yeah. I'd just come up with a better lie. I'd I'm going like, to plant some trees. Oh, but then they'd expect trees. Okay, yeah, fair. Over the next three days, the excavation of the garden continued. Just as we kept digging, we kept finding bodies and more bodies. And it just seemed endless. Whatever we took down, whatever we moved, wherever we were digging, we'd find a body. It was just unbelievable. She put seven people in this small yard and there wasn't even a witness to any of these burials. Not one. It was a really small yard. I think I've seen a picture of it. Her yard, her front garden was probably the equivalent to my front garden, maybe a tiny bit smaller. Wait, she's, this is the front garden? Yeah, front garden. Oh my God, sorry, I thought it was the back garden. No, it's a front garden. So that's even more like daring really isn't it surely anybody could just walk past she's lugging a body into a hole once again though you see an old lady dragging a bin bag or whatever looks a bit body shaped you aren't gonna think that's an old lady with a dead body i mean i am now yeah but you'd probably just be like oh dorothy has been eating a lot of crisps got a lot of trash to bury (laughs) dorothy is getting rid of some curtains yeah The seventh and final body was found on November 14th, three days after the first excavation. It was buried right in front of the house, just a few feet from the pavement. No way! Well, she was kind of bundled up in almost like a a scrunched up seated position, but she was missing her head, hands and feet. I went through every flower pot and emptied them out to make sure that we weren't missing anything, but those appendages were never found. To this day, we've never recovered the head, hands, or feet. Their whereabouts, it's anybody's guess. If the walls in this home could talk, we would probably be horrified. That's mad. Yeah. Do they know who that is? How do you tell who somebody is without their heads, hands and feet? I don't think you can because it's dental records and fingerprints, isn't it? My God. Three days after the discovery of the seventh body, Dorothea was finally found. She'd made it 400 miles away to LA, living it up. But she'd been drinking with a man um, who then saw her on the TV as a wanted person. So he was like, Oh, crap. So he he grasped on her. He phoned the police, told them where she was staying. And John Cabrera immediately flew down to John Wayne Airport in nearby Santa Ana. We landed. LAPD pulled up out on the tarmac. We got out of the plane. And uh, there she was. They had her in cuffs. 
you know, we ceremoniously uh, walked over and uh, they transferred uh, her to me. I asked her, you know, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. And then out of nowhere, she just says, Mr. Cabrera, I, I'm sorry. She just turns up to L.A., goes to a bunch of bars. Yeah, I'm just on vacation. So the last hurrah. Yeah. I got on, got on a little holiday. John was eager to question Dorothea about the seven bodies they found in her garden. Well, yeah. We got back here to Sacramento. I took her down to the Hall of Justice. Um, at that time, I asked her if she wanted to give any kind of a statement, and uh, she declined, and so we just booked her into Sacramento County Jail. And that would be the last time that I'd ever speak with her. She would never speak to me again. Dorothea was locked away, but it wasn't over yet. Now they had to identify all seven of the bodies. Most of them didn't have teeth, or they had one or two teeth. In the case of the one body in the front yard, she didn't have any hands, so we couldn't do fingerprints. So we started gathering information. So among the seven names was Bert Montoya, the man whose disappearance has started the search on F Street. So this is the guy that initially, mm. you know, if it went for him, going missing, this, she would have been all right. Bert would be the third body that I found. He was buried under a concrete basin in the backyard. He was number three. And uh, that puzzle was now solved. Bert Montoya had wandered away. He had some type of mental deficiency and his parents had always taken care of him. And 13, about 13 years before he died, he disappeared from their home in New Orleans, Louisiana, and they had no idea what had happened to him. And it turned out that his 92-year-old mother was still alive. And she had been searching for him her whole life, and or, you know, ever since he'd been missing. And so they were really, really grateful to know, even though it was such a sad ending, they were very thankful that they were able to have him come home. As well as identifying the victims, Laura needed to find out the cause of their deaths. So how was this seemingly little old lady able to conquer her victims what she found was a lethal cocktail. We did find traces of Delmain, the drug in the bodies, and that was another thing that I was able to determine by gathering all these medical records on everyone. None of the victims had ever been prescribed Delmain. Only Dorothea Puente had been described Delmain. This particular drug, when coupled with alcohol, could be deadly. It just simply puts you in a catatonic state and with the alcohol, overwhelm the body and stop the heart. Toxicology reports showed that each of the seven bodies exhumed in her garden had traces of the same prescription sleeping pill. So as the detectives continued to dig into Dorothea's past, they found that not all of her victims were buried in her garden. So remember Ruth? Yeah. Well, that's her first tenant... Originally, her death had been ruled out as suicide. Well, that kind of just pulled my stomach. And that's, like I said, that's when it, it brought everything back to where, okay, now we can go after her. You know, because all this time, we know that mom didn't commit suicide, especially with the amounts of the drugs that were in her, all the undissolved pills in her stomach. There's no way that she could have taken all of that and lived long enough to take everything. 
The ninth victim was a 77-year-old man from Oregon called Everson Gilmuth. He had become pen pals of Dorothea during her three years in prison for fraud. And then when she paroled in 1985, he went and picked her up and drove her back here to the boarding house. And this is where he would be staying. I, just look, I looked at a picture of him on Google. Why? He's so cute. Oh, Everson. <laughs> he cut all ties with his family and he, he completely disappeared. Every time they would call, he was always out. They never got to speak with him and she always had a reason why. But um, in actuality, he picked her up in late 1985. He was laying in a homemade coffin along the Sacramento River in early 1986. And Everson would, would remain a John Doe until this case in 1988 broke. And that's when his family contacted our office and saying, we're looking for a father. No way. Why would she, I just don't, why would she do that to that poor old man? Where'd she get a coffin from? Who knows? Dorothea remained in custody for over four years. And eventually it was agreed that the trial would be held in Salinas in nearby Monterey County. The trial wasn't going to be as straightforward as investigators had hoped. Dorothea's refusal to admit to the murders meant that they would somehow need to prove that the sweet old lady in the dock was in fact a serial killer. The trial finally began at the Monterey County Courthouse on February 9th, 1993. The 64-year-old admitted to burying the bodies of the seven tenants and continuing to claim their social security money. But, bizarrely, she still denied murdering them. Bill Clawson testified during the trial. When I walked to the uh, jury box, or to where I needed to be, she just had a, a cold stare. Just a cold stare. And after I testified, I walked away. She just kept staring straight ahead up by the judge. It angered me at the time. When I walked back facing her, as I was walking back to go back and sit down, my thoughts were just to, to, to strangle her. But I have more control than a lot of people. And I just walked past and went back and sat down and listened to the rest. During the five-month trial, the jury heard from both sides. Dorothea's defence team admitted that she was a thief, but not a murderer, while the prosecution argued that all the victims had been poisoned with the same poison. She wanted their social security check. She wanted that cash. So she just had to dispose of them to get to it. So she saw her victims as obstacles. They were barriers that were getting in the way of something that she wants. And she very cool and calm and in a very calculated manner dispatched them so she could have their money. On August 26th, 1993, after deliberating, <laughs> I love that word, for a very long 24 days, the jury found Dorothea Puente guilty of three murders, but they were deadlocked on all the other charges. I think what disappointed me as an investigator, and I think it disappointed uh, people that were involved in the case, that of all the nine charges of murder, seven of them were so similar there was no doubt 
that the seven bodies that we found in this yard should have all been guilty. However, only three of the seven in the yard would be charged against her. Four others would go 11 to one with one juror saying, no, he didn't believe that's what happened. On December 10th, 1993, Dorothea Puente was sentenced to life in prison without parole. She was immediately sent to the Central Californian Women's Facility in Chowchilla. Although no charges were brought against any others, it was believed that she had an accomplice. Oh. Uh, I don't think it's an accomplice. That's just that poor guy that was digging holes well, yeah, for, but a, for a garbage. Yeah, there could be someone else, though, because what? She, she dragged him out the front and nobody saw so they'd have had that would have had to been done quickly mm. can she do that quickly and also she's pulling teeth out i had a dentist i had a dentist <sighs> once she was really small like she was about your height she was about five foot two i reckon mm-hmm. five between five foot five foot two and when i had to have my teeth taken out to have my braces she no joke had to she had a foot on the fucking chair and was like heaving her whole body strength and these teeth would just not come out so and she was a strong she quit dentistry to be a stunt woman i hope she made it so you know she was in the she was a prime physical specimen oh right danny can i just say something you know how you were saying at the beginning of this podcast that you just don't like asmr i cannot deal with teeth talk okay (laughs) okay can we stop the teeth talk how did she pull out all those teeth i don't don't care i don't know don't want to think about it okay during her time in prison, Dorothea found a place in the limelight. You're not going to believe this, Danny. She released a book. What? It was a cookbook called... Oh, fuck off. Cooking with a Serial Killer. <laughs> <laughs> that is not real. Uh, <laughs> How to poison people and get away with it. <laughs> Fucking hell. Right, so I'll just let that sink in for a minute. I just want to know if it's on Kindle. I'm looking for it now. Go for it. Here it is, cooking with a serial killer from Dorothea Puente. Where it's is got it? Three point four out of five on Goodreads. Oh, let's oh, let's please buy it now. It's on Amazon. Oh God! <laughs> Look at this. Okay, everybody at home has to Google this right now because this is the most terrifying cookbook cover I've ever seen in my whole life. What a time! Oh my God! To be alive! What a world we live in! That this is a thing. It's got four and a half stars on Amazon. It's less than seven quid. If, right, literally my thumb. Buy it now. It's on the buy and now then we'll, button. And we'll review it next episode. <laughs> I like, I can't. Oh, I'll do buy it, it now. It. Buy it, it now. I'll buy it now. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> my search is, oh my God. It's on its way. It's going to be here the day after tomorrow. You're supporting Dorothea Puente. You've just given her money. Oh my God, I have. <laughs> Why didn't you tell me that before? I don't know, I just realised. Oh, I regret everything. <laughs> this has escalated quickly, hasn't it? <laughs> On March 27th, 2011. Oh wait, it's right, she died. Okay, for you. <laughs> she was 82. and She took all her secrets to the grave. No. When I heard she died, I mean, it made me feel good. I, I just I had like a, a relief. If she was still alive and I saw her, I couldn't forgive her. I should. 
because it's the human thing to do. But in my heart, no, I really wouldn't want to. There's nothing I can do, though. She's, she's gone. Mom's gone. She's gone. So it's over. Incredibly, the house at 1426 F Street still stands today. It's hard to imagine what happened inside. However, it is under new ownership of Tom Williams and Barbara Holmes. And they are the cutest couple ever. So you think. Well, no, they are. They are. All right. There's two of them. They can bury their own hearts. <laughs> It's become a bit of a tourist attraction, as these places do, and they actually embrace the attention. It was built in 1895, and it's gone through a lot of iterations. A lot of people have been in and out of it. Uh, it can't be torn down. It's considered a historic uh, house in the Sacramento, and they would not let anybody tear it down. So it's here it sits. We love it. Uh, we, we have no problem whatsoever with uh, any of it. So it's just our house, and we made it home, and we're, we're, we're pretty happy with it. Now, you still get people walking by asking them, you know, how could we be crazy enough to buy this house and stuff. But between the two of us, we've made it into a home. Yeah, and, and, you know, we tried to um, make it more comfortable and, and try to diffuse the whole mystique around it. And, yeah, we, we were doing our best. She was a hardened criminal in the body of a little old lady, yeah. She was a hard, hard person. Pure evil. Like American Horror Story kind of murder house, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Lastly, Detective John Cabrera vividly recalls the moment he realised the little old lady was not what she seemed after uncovering the first body in her garden. I looked up at one point onto that balcony and Dorothea was standing there looking right straight down at me, knowing that probably within minutes I was going to uncover that second body and sidetracked me from digging in order to walk her over to the motel. And it's there she made her escape. She was a very evil woman. And a woman that, when she made her mind up what she was gonna do, she did it without hesitation, without remorse. She set out on a journey. And um, that journey ended November 11th, 1988, when we arrived at her doorstep. And that was the story of Dorothea Puente. That was wild. Wild. You know, you and you were out having a go at your husband because you're trying to save money and he went to the cinema the other day. You just bought a serial killer's cookbook. I have already thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know, I'm just going to have to hide it. Next week, we, we should start off with a little review. Yeah, okay, deal. Let's do it. Yep. Won't let everyone down. Next time on Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson. And me, Danny Howard. We're turning back the clock to look possibly at the most infamous killing couples in the world, Fred and Rose West. Subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of Devils in the Dark. And we would love it if you could leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, if you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please do check the description for lots of helpful resources. Special thanks to Woodcut Media and our wonderful producers at Audio Boom Studios.